come to meet with the king. We have come to be privileged as sons and daughters entering into the court to be accepted, not to wonder like Esther, will we be allowed in? We who deserve rightly death. No, we are welcome. We're brought in. We're given all the encouragement of Christ himself, that he's died for us, he lives for us, he ever lives to make intercession for us, he stands at right God's, God's right hand for us. Christ is yours, dear believer. And all that is in him, all that he has won, is yours now and for eternity. And so we turn again to hear the word of Christ speaking to us. Psalm 124. Psalm 124. It's been some months since I was with you, but last time I was with you, we looked at Psalm 123. If you remember that, you might notice that there is in these songs of ascent an upward trajectory, and it's sort of repeated and even triadic, if you like that word. A little bit of a big word for us, but these, if you like these, these panels of psalms comes in three. Psalm 100 through 122 sorry, 120 through 122, you'll notice that there is a progression from being down and discouraged and really at odds with all that is in the world to a rising praise up to 122. Same thing happens in 123 through 126, and in all the Psalms of Ascent, there's a sort of gradual cumulative effect in every three Psalms, and that just brings us up further and further in this heavenly and spiritual journey to draw near to God in worship and at last in glory. Let's pray as we draw near to God in his word. Oh, our Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us in these last days in your Son. Having sent to us many prophets, having given to us apostles, recorded your word in Scripture, it was not your will to leave us without the Lord Jesus Christ, but to send him in the fullness of time that we who are born under the law might by him be freed from its condemnation, freed from all the power of Satan, freed from the power of sin and hell, and free even from all your and our true enemies. We thank you, our Father, that as we come to worship, We are engaged in a warfare, a warfare against all the falsehoods that Satan would speak to us and our own natural and fleshly hearts would tell us. We come to do battle this morning to be truly sane, to come against those forces that oppose us and all the knowledge of God and by the grace that is in Christ, by those weapons that are not carnal but spiritual, effective, powerful to bring down by Christ himself all that exalts itself against your knowledge. Would you come to us and with that power, with that truthfulness, with such grace and comfort, come and speak to your people. In the reading of your word and the preaching of and unfolding of that word, may we hear the voice of Christ our Savior. We pray in his name.
Psalm 124, a song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is God's precious, glorious, good word for you this morning. Not long ago, I was in a part of the world where there are quite a number of migrants and refugees, and I got to hear their stories. One story in particular stuck with me. The story of a man who had been captured by a terrorist organization in the Middle East while trying to escape held hostage for months and tortured. Imagine that. After years of hardship, trying to escape it, he's caught by terrorists. And when he finally does manage to get away, he's in a place where there is no work, and all he manages to do is earn less than a living wage and sleep on the street, hoping he can find a place at night where people won't assault and injure him. This is an educated person. A person who knows multiple languages, whose life has been utterly ruined. And you look at that, and I trust you're like me. You respond to something like that, and you say, that person really needs help. I wish we could help him. Friends, it isn't just people in desperate situations, and some of us have been there, But it isn't just those desperate situations in which this is the church's confession. At all times, the church declares, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This was a particular declaration of certain French churches, French Huguenot churches. Imagine the persecution that they faced as they would enter into worship. This is what they would say to one another, what they would repeat in their hearts to God. Our help is is in the name of the Lord. We who are so desperately needy in every way. Yes, certainly sin, but all of its effects. Think of the miseries that have been brought upon us by the ways that we have dishonored the name of the Lord. The ways that we have brought ourselves into misery by lack of wisdom, by other people to whom we've responded in bad ways. Things people have done to us. You don't have to look far to recognize that we need help. And the world around us resonates with this, doesn't it? We have whole legions of professionals devoted to helping us. Doctors, psychiatrists, counselors. Every kind of physical, spiritual, emotional need under the sun is ours. In our humanity, in our fallenness, we really need help. But your help, dear church, is not in the professionals and the experts. Your help, my help, 
is in the name of the Lord. And we need to be reminded of that as a church going up, a church on pilgrimage to the heavenly Jerusalem, a church entering into the worship of God, surrounded by a hostile world, a world that even we found again last time in Psalm 123 is so filled with pride and contempt against us. This is a song of the pilgrim life. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I want to begin by telling us, or rather reminding us at least, of some Bible stories, and they're long stories. I won't tell them to you in the long way. I'm going to give them to you in the shortest way I can. Think of stories like those of David. Goliath, a giant, threatens David. He blasphemes the name of the Lord. And the Lord gives him into David's hand, and he's killed by a stone from a sling. Later in David's life, Saul rises up to kill David, and the entire nation's army comes against to seek and to destroy David. And Saul kills many people attempting to find him. But somehow or other, David always manages to escape. David, in that season, flees to Abimelech, the Philistine. He's nearly caught and killed by the Philistines until he pretends to be a madman. Spit is coming down into his beard, and he's driven away. Why'd you bring this crazy man to me? Absalom, when finally David is king, rises up against the king and nearly kills him with a treasonous army. He even has on his side, Absalom does, the angelic council, we're told, of Ahithophel, a man who is like speaking the very oracles of God, yet God defeats his counsel by another man, Hushai the Archite, and David isn't killed, but he's restored to his throne. Are you catching a theme here? Stories of escape run from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible. Think of Lamech chasing Jacob. He's coming after Jacob. Why is he coming? Just to make sure he gets to say goodbye? No, because he wants to kill Jacob and take back his daughters. But he's warned in a dream. Esau meets Jacob likewise, just a little bit later. Here's the angry brother, 400 men with him. He could easily have destroyed Jacob and all his company, and the Lord turns his heart. Joseph's brothers think they've destroyed him when he's finally sold into slavery. We've gotten rid of this pesky brother. Jacob is convinced even that he's dead, and God raises him up to the second in command over the whole nation of Egypt to bring about the restoration of God's people in a time of great need. Another king arises, doesn't know Joseph. He tries to destroy all the babies in Israel. And yet the Lord kept Moses in reeds by the Nile. Think of this, putting your baby into the river right there, with the crocodiles that one of our children hopes to see later today. And he is not destroyed by the animals, not by the river. He is rescued and also raised up to be the next Pharaoh and finally to be the deliverer of God's people. Think of Israel leaving Egypt. They have no weapons. They have nothing but God going before them. Pharaoh's heart is hard, and he chases after them right into the middle of the Red Sea, and it looks like everything is finished. Isn't that what the Israelites think? They're backed up against the sea. Pharaoh's coming after them. 
the Lord opens the way, and Pharaoh's army is drowned. Are you hearing this theme? Again and again and again. Even in the book of Judges, we read of God's sinning people enslaved, nearly brought to an end, and the Lord rescues them by the hand of Judges. Jehoshaphat the king, confronted by a massive horde of people, they would have utterly wiped out the kingdom of Judah. But he prays. And his armies and the king himself go forward singing praise to God, and the Lord confuses their enemies and they fight and kill each other. Athaliah, a wicked queen, attempts to kill the royal seed that will produce the Messiah, but Joash is hidden in the temple, and finally Athaliah is killed. Jezebel sends out her search parties to destroy Elijah. He's protected and hidden by the Lord. The Assyrian army encamps just a few kilometers off of Jerusalem. Much of Judah has been captured and destroyed and burned, but Hezekiah prays. We'll come back to this. And the angel of the Lord rescues his people. Daniel's enemies hate him. They want to destroy him because he worships and prays to the true and living God. When the king exalts his name, the Lord then confronts the king with his own name. Daniel worships the name of the living God. He's thrown in with the lions. Everything seems to be over. And the Lord shuts their mouths and destroys those who would destroy Daniel. Again and again and again. Do you see this? Haman makes a wicked conspiracy against all the Jews and his plans unravel before his very enemy Mordecai, whose name he attempted to destroy along with all the Jews. Ezra and Nehemiah return to the land of Israel to build the house of God and the temple. And men like Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab come up and attempt to stop the work with accusations and letters and all kinds of political maneuvers, intrigues. And the good hand of God is upon the builders, and the work is done. You get to the New Testament. We read of so many deliverances, but think of the leaders of the Jews beating and trying to silence the apostles, imprisoning them, and three times, three times in the book of Acts, the doors to the prison are literally opened, and God's prisoners escape without harm. Paul is nearly seized at Damascus, but he's let down in the most humiliating way, but in a basket over the city wall, and he escapes. At Lystra, Jews are persuaded to stone Paul. They drag him out of the city, they stone him, they leave him for dead, and he lives. Again, and again, and again, and again. These stories of deliverance from the hands of wicked men, again, flow from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. They continue in your story. They will continue to the end of the world because stories of narrow escape are woven into the depth and the breadth of the Bible. Notice again our text. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Rescue from evil people. This is something that your God does. He is mighty to save. Maybe you've had stories like this. 
the really bad boss, the person who has attempted to assault you. But whether or not it was wicked people, you can't be a Christian without having close calls and deliverances. I can remember times in my life when I nearly died due to sickness or accidents. I can remember times in my life, I'm sorry to say, when I nearly gave way to temptations that would have wrecked my faith. I'm sure you have your stories too. How wonderful the stories of God's deliverance. God intends you and I to glory in them because he is the great deliverer. There are so many more. Think of the Apostle Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 11, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure... And what's the punchline to all of that? He's writing a letter and declaring God's faithfulness in rescuing him. In every case, the Lord our God delivers us. What is it? I'd like you to notice in Psalm 124, from which we are delivered. It is the furious and really terrifying anger of men. And I'm sure you've experienced the angry neighbor or boss or parent. You've felt the anger of men. Maybe you have been deeply angry yourself and you can relate to this. Observe how the psalmist describes this. David describes the anger of men first like a vicious beast. Swallowing, not even chewing, just directly swallowing down its prey. Verse 3, they would have swallowed us up alive. We would have been, verse 6, like prey for their teeth. Think of that snarling dog coming after you, just ready to attack, ready to pounce, ready to tear at you. This is what men can be like. Vicious, cruel, evil. We like to think men must have some basic good in them. And the Bible tells you that this is really the character of all people apart from our help, which is in the name of the Lord. That anger of men, he describes also like a sort of flood, and he uses three different sort of metaphors to build this up. When people rose up against us like a flood and became angry with us, then, like a flood, again, they would have swallowed us alive, like a flood would have swept us away, the torrent gone over us, the raging waters would have destroyed us. Think of Noah's flood here. Men in their opposition to Christ, a society that, is an, that really hates God, is like this vicious flood. You feel the pressures of the society you live in. You live in a city here, or at least near to a city, where you feel the intensity and friction of what it means to be a Christian in a society that does not know and does not want the grace of God in Christ. Do you feel that? This is the anger of men compared with the great flood. 
that would wash over us and submerge us, drown us, destroy everything, unless the Lord put us into his ark. We have reasons. We really have reasons sometimes to be afraid of men. We know we're wrong, that our true fear ought to be of God, but when we look at men, is there not, humanly speaking, good reason to be afraid of what men can do to us? Look at what, that, what has been done to our brothers and sisters persecuted in other places. Think of the hostility of the world against the church in all its, its seasons and all times. You cannot live in this world at any particular period, no matter how much we'd like to think it's perhaps a peaceful season, you cannot live without experiencing the hostility and anger of men against the Lord and against his Christ. You cannot in yourself stand against it. This torrent, this flood, this snatching and snapping of the teeth is a picture of hell itself. And we would do well to ask ourselves the question, why are men so angry? David, why were people so upset with you? Why is Saul chasing after you? I had a friend say to me not that long ago, this was a helpful thing. He said, Anger is really messianic. We exalt ourselves to be the Messiah, put ourselves into the position of being judge and Lord of all, and this is really what it means that we're angry. This is what men do in their anger. They exalt themselves to be above the throne that Jesus occupies. Again, Think of what Psalm 2 says, and it doesn't say, well, this is certain periods of, of the world. No, it says, this is the world. The kings of the earth have gathered together. The rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. This is why the question of that psalm begins in this way. Why do the nations rage? No, not why are the nations upset a little bit? Why do they want to have an election? Why, why is there a sort of peaceful um, protest. No. Why do the nations furiously rage against the Lord and against his anointed? This is the direction of all the hostility against the church. And now it's true. Sometimes we can raise the ire and offense of other people because of things that we have done sinning against them or bad actions, unfaithfulness, lack of wisdom. That's all true. But the hostility of the world will always be against the church, not ultimately just because of you, but because of Christ. You, dear friends, belong to him. You, dear friends, are ruled by him. And you should not expect that anger to look like the frowning face and the redness of skin. It can look very seductive or very depressed, or bored. It can seem friendly even. The anger and hostility of men can be cloaked in many ways, but it is always an opposition to the worship of Jesus Christ. Think of all the ways your TV, your phone, screams out to you that there's something better than Jesus. 
that you need something other than Jesus. That there's a better way of escape. That there's hope in another name. Think of all the ways that you are bombarded with these messages. They don't look angry, do they? What is behind them? Nothing but rage against Christ. An attempt to usurp his title, his right, his claims, his exalted name. Dear friends, whatever shape, whatever sort of way the world will come at you, or your own flesh tempt you, or Satan come to assault you with doubts and questions, to slander God to you, it will always be rooted in an anger, a messianic anger that attempts to crowd Jesus out of his rightful place. A third metaphor. The anger of men, motivated, indeed allied with our great enemy Satan, is also like a snare in which you catch a bird. We don't live in a place where they do this, but my family and I, having been in Africa for quite some time, saw this frequently. Why do you construct a snare for a bird? So you can have it as a plaything? No. Because you intend to eat it. You've got to eat something. And this is such a, a vivid picture picked up in history. The great king, great king, so to speak, of the Assyrian Sennacherib. You remember, we've already referred to this comes up against Jerusalem after toppling other nations. He comes up into Judea. We find him there taking over the nearby cities to Jerusalem. Lachish is taken. They can actually see the fires burning from Jerusalem. Everything seems to be lost. The Rabshakeh, that, that's his title. He comes up to Jerusalem. He speaks to the people on the wall and he tells them, what gods have delivered their people out of my hand? And we read in the historical record, you can go see this in the Chicago Oriental Museum, Oriental Institute Museum. There's a, there's a stevia in cuneiform, it says, this is his, his historical record, I trapped Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. And what's the rest of the story? Well, according to Sennacherib, I trapped Hezekiah like a bird in a cage and then I went home. But we know the rest of the story. 185,000 soldiers, Assyrian soldiers, an entire army, a large city of fierce, mighty men perished in a single night because the angel of the Lord went out to vindicate his own name and his place. This is how David describes it. We were trapped in the snare. They were ready to eat us. Their rage and their plots have set the trap, but we escaped the snare is broken. It wasn't that the snare misfired. There was every reason it should have caught us. We should have been trapped. We should have been consumed and destroyed. But the trap was destroyed, and we can no longer be taken. Now, do you notice how much glory this gives to men? We were about to be swallowed. We were about to be drowned. We were about to be trapped and eaten. And what? Our power and the might of our strength, our spiritual piety, our interest in God, our knowledge of theology, our desire to draw near to... No! No, 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 no. Not one of those is listed, is it? It wasn't your strength. It wasn't your righteousness. It wasn't what you think of yourself. 
Dear friends, the glory goes to God. God delivers his people. Our help is in his name. Why are we so delivered? Why is this our story? Why will this always be your story? It may look really dark right now. You may find yourself in another period of your life in a very, very difficult situation where you think to yourself, I don't know if there's any way out of this. This is your story. Deliverance upon deliverance. Why? You just got lucky? Notice what it says in verses 1 and 2. If it hadn't been the Lord who was on our side, this is what would have happened to us. Now catch this. It doesn't say if the Lord wasn't on our side because, well, he figured out who was the right people and, you know, we're the right people, so of course we're going to win. No, he didn't say that. It isn't because of righteousness. It isn't because we didn't deserve to be in the trap. Deserve to be consumed by the, like prey. It wasn't because we didn't deserve to perish in hell forever and be swallowed up by the grave. Like Korah and all of his company. No, we actually deserve that. But God was for us. When no one else was for us, when we ourselves were the enemies of God, sinners without any hope, God was actually for us. When we could not have done anything It was Christ who died for us. God for us makes all the difference. Why is your story, dear Christian, going to be unlike every other story? It's not a story where the good guys win. We're not the good guys. But your story is one where God is always going to vindicate and deliver you. Why? Because he, in his grace and mercy, has chosen to be on your side. It is just mercy from first to last. He has set his love upon you in Christ. Called you to be his own. And so he is for us in such a way that the Apostle Paul can say these words. It's so remarkable. We should often read Romans 8 and be amazed by the the questions that are posed there. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, fill in the blank. Who can possibly be against us? Can tribulation, distress, peril, sword, famine, nakedness? These are all things that Paul is going to list. Can Satan be against you ultimately? Can the accuser come and say, no, your salvation isn't secure. What you've done... Not good enough. You've got to do better. Try to be a little bit more righteous. But you never will. Sorry. Friends, if God has set his love upon you and the almighty power of the universe is bent upon your care and keeping, then you are safe even in the most terrible and sorrowful and painful of circumstances. I want you to notice here. David doesn't say, God was on our side, so we never had any problems. We just went out, conquered everybody, no problems, just ruled in happiness and golden light all our years. No. Sometimes the scriptures are taken in this sort of way, like a sort of mantra, and we're even told by certain sectors of people who call themselves to be evangelicals that we have to declare these things over our life. 
you know, uh, you're hidden in the shadow of the Almighty, and so you can never have any pestilence come against you. Thousands will fall at your side. Well, dear friends, all of that is true. You, that is really the case. And yet, notice what it says in Psalm 91. He will deliver you in trouble. Not he will deliver you without trouble. We would very much like that, wouldn't we? But God will not get the glory that he deserves. And you will not have the opportunity to see the greatness of his name and to praise him for all that he is worth unless you are in trouble, unless men oppose you and nearly swallow you up, unless Satan comes with what would seem an invincible tactic to destroy your soul. No, dear friends, it is not without tribulation that you will enter the kingdom of heaven. You may not deduce from circumstances, from trouble, God isn't for me. All the while men are rising against David, God was for him. All the while that you are in trouble and the world around you is opposed to God, to his Christ, to you, God is for you. And all those trials, temptations, trouble, violence will be the place in which he will magnify his power to deliver you. Haven't you experienced many answers to prayer? Haven't there been those moments where maybe just because of fleshly desire, but you prayed and you called out to God, Lord, help me in this situation, and he did. Haven't you had this, dear believer? Those answers to prayer are a type of our great salvation and a promise from God to you that he has delivered you and will deliver you to the very end. He will redeem Israel out of all of his troubles. As it says in Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. What are we meant to do? Verse 6. Bless the Lord. Notice what it says again. Verse 1. It's easy to just pass over it like it's a sort of, well, insignificant phrase. If it hadn't been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. This is the choir director saying, okay, guys, you need to join in because you all know this. You have all experienced this. This is our life. The whole chorus of God's people is meant to lift our voice and say, this is what would have happened to me, but blessed be the Lord. My help is in his name. Now, the really substantive part of all this we have yet to get to, and that is that this is a psalm that delivers to us, really shows us the picture of what God has done in his son. From first to last, think of Jesus in his life. He comes into the world and Herod tries to destroy the infant Lord. Men take up stones to kill him and he escapes from their midst. People plotted to crucify and destroy him and he's crucified, but the Lord of glory cannot be dead. He must rise. He appeared to be trapped and caught and in their teeth beyond rescue. That's sure what his disciples think after he's buried, isn't it? Looks like it's all over. We've reached the end of the story. There's nothing more. Dear friends, 
Jesus Christ possessed and possesses the invisible power and authority that not even the angelic hosts cannot contemplate. So mighty is his power that he, by his own authority given to him by the Father, takes his life once again. He has authority to take it. He is rescued from the snare and the power of the devil, delivered from death and hell, raised up in glory. He has escaped. The trap is so thoroughly broken, death will never hold him again and will never, because of that, hold you. Every time it seems helpless and hopeless and you see the world coming against you and you wonder, is the church really going to make it? Let's confess, we have those moments, don't we? Remember, Jesus is raised from the dead. Remember that he has escaped. And it isn't a narrow escape, is it? It's an escape that brings us with him. And the wonderful thing that it says here in the text is that our help is in the name of the Lord. He is, well, it says in our translation, on our side. Or really, he is for us. God is for us. He himself marks the boundary between life and glory and joy and certain destruction, hell forever, and the mockery of men. Has he suddenly grown weak? Has he forgotten us in our circumstances? Could it be that our distresses and our troubles are just a little too much for him? Never. Never. From where does our help come? From the maker of heaven and earth. There is no strength like that of Jesus who created all things and by whom without, that without him there was not anything made that was made. He is your helper. God has come to you to be your helper. When you were without help, when you and I had no one to look to, when there was no one who cared for your soul, the Psalms say. When you couldn't raise yourself up by your bootstraps, God came to help. To help those who are really helpless, whose situations are so broken that we can't even imagine a way out. Jesus Christ came into the world to save. To save us sinners. Remember that in temptation. Remember that in the face of death. Remember that maybe most of all when you look at the news. Jesus Christ is really raised. You are delivered and however and whoever comes against you in this life. God's covenant with you is certain. He will rise to your defense. He will never forsake you. He has bound himself to you in covenant. And his whole purpose is not to frighten you, not to cause you alarm, but to give you greater praise, to bless the name by which under heaven alone we may be saved. That name, that precious name of Jesus. To whom are you looking for help? We too quickly look to our own names, or maybe, again, in our day, perhaps we look to the names of experts. This or that person will help us. This or that preacher will help us. If I just go to this person 
And if they'll accept me, if they'll tell me the way to go, if they'll inform me of the right information, I'm sure things will turn out okay. My friends, you have a much better hope. I have a much better hope than that. We have a name above every name. A name that quiets our fears and bids our sorrows to cease. A name that is triumphant over the devil, over sin, over temptation, the name of Jesus. There's that wonderful hymn of St. Patrick, St. Patrick's Breastplate. We take unto ourselves the name of God. We bind it upon ourselves like a breastplate. This is our spiritual warfare. To do what? To pray better? To take the name of Christ to us, to wear Christ, to come to every situation, leaning upon him, his authority, his grace, his certain promises to us, not upon our own wisdom, not upon our own way, but in everything to come to God by him with every need to run to him and every temptation to draw near to him. It is him and him alone that God will accept. It is his name in which we must trust. Indeed, his name is the hope of the nations and a confident refuge for every believer. Let's pray together. Oh, our God, we praise you and thank you for Jesus, for his mighty name. We praise you that he has all power and authority. And we pray that we might come to you for refuge and that you would again and again demonstrate to us, your people, you are our help. You are our shield. You are our safety even in the most dire of troubles, even when our own souls accuse us, show us, O God, that we have such a great Savior, Christ the Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.